2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, the podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark as your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Robert Mann about, his, about the political evolution of the young Ronald Reagan, entitled Becoming Ronald Reagan, The Rise of a Conservative Icon. Robert, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks, Mark. Good to be with you today. And it's good to have you on our channel. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
0: Well, I started out uh, as a journalist, a newspaper journalist, uh, many years ago, and found my way into politics. Worked on Capitol Hill for several U.S. senators in the uh, mid '80s and through the '90s. Uh, Russell Long and John Bro from Louisiana, where I, I'm from and where I live now, and I came back to Louisiana uh, in, the, um, in the in the '90s, where I and eventually worked uh, at the end of my political career for our, one of our governors, and have been. Teaching uh, political communication and mass communication journalism at Louisiana State University for the last 14 years, but really since the early 90s, I've been writing books. I was lucky enough to work for uh, senators and politicians who tolerated my uh, sideline of writing political history. And uh, so, this is my the, the the book that we're talking about today is my seventh book. Most of them were written while I was working on Capitol Hill or working for politicians. And um, here I am today uh, teaching what I used to do, which was uh, uh, political communication. I was a press secretary, um, writing speeches and press releases and talking to the press on behalf of uh, these politicians.
2: What was it that led you to write a book about Ronald Reagan and specifically about Ronald Reagan's uh, early involvement with politics?
0: Well, I've been fascinated for a long time with the 1964 presidential election. I wrote a book about eight or nine years ago on that election through the lens of the famous Daisy Girl spot that that uh, Lyndon Johnson and his advertising people uh, ran against Barry Goldwater. This a lot of your listeners would be familiar with it. You've, it's probably the most famous political spot in, in American political history. The little girl plucking the daisies and the atom bomb goes off in the background. And and I wrote a book about that spot, Daisy Petals and Mushroom Clouds. And and while I was doing the spot and 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 really studying the, the history of that of that race, I kept coming across this speech that Ronald Reagan had given toward the end of the uh toward the end of the election, less than a week before uh, election day in 1964. For Barry Goldwater, it was a thirty-minute televised speech on NBC on the night of October twenty-seventh, and it was a, it was really a remarkable speech. And everyone credited the speech with launching Reagan's political career. And you know, two two years later, he gets he's elected governor of California in a landslide. And so I thought, well, you know, there's a there's a really inter- there's got to be a really interesting story about the, how this speech this one speech launched the 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 career of a future president. And I started. I started with the idea I was going to do a book just about the speech, kind of like I had done the book about just about the spot, the Daisy Girl spot. And the more I got into it, the, the more I realized that what I had was maybe not a book about the speech, but a book culminating in the speech that was really about how Reagan got to that point, how he how he became this fully formed political figure in 1964, what led to that, how, and I knew he vaguely had been a Democrat, a liberal Democrat in his early years, and I want to know more about that. And when I started pulling at the threads, I found there was a much better story, which was Reagan's political evolution through the 50s and into, into through the mid 60s that got him to that point where he was able to launch himself as a, as a conservative, a prominent conservative.
2: It's a very interesting book in that respect because I think about how so many authors who have uh, written about Ron Reagan, most famously Edmund Morris, have talked about how inscrutable he is, how difficult he is to access. And, and what you've done is you, you're charting this development that takes place and you're pinpointing various things. And I, I thought it was especially interesting how you take his you know, his own statements about this process and how you measure that up to the record that we have and, and, and get a sense as to the degree to which that evolution had, was in itself part of his mythology.
0: Yeah, that's uh, – uh, you know, I, I get this question a lot uh, because people do remember – Reagan's famous line about, and he used it all all his career. You know, there's sort of this way of attacking the Democratic, the Democratic Party and liberal, liberal politics by saying, "I didn't leave the Democratic Party; the Democratic Party left me." And that really is part of this mythology of Ronald Reagan that he was this, this, uh, you know, tr- uh, all, this this uh, this sincere guy who um, stayed true to his principles from his twenties on through uh, the, in his his presidency and that it wasn't Ronald Reagan that changed because he was a rock. Uh, but it was the party that he belonged to that changed uh, so much out from under him. And uh, a lot of people believe that. I mean, most people believe that. And it just does that, that, that telling of his political evolution, that telling of, of how he becomes a, a conservative Republican just does not stand up to to, to to any scrutiny because that's just not what happened. He he proactively left the the uh, uh, the Democratic Party of his youth in the fifties.
2: And as you explain in his early years, so much of his early politics were inherited rather than necessarily developed. I was wondering if you could take us to that point. His uh, childhood in uh, in the Midwest his, uh, you know, his time in college, his early years in in, in acting and and explain what his political views were and, and, and where they came from.
0: Well, to understand Reagan's political views in his youth, you know, his, maybe his teen years going into his, his twenties, when he went to Hollywood, when he was in, in his early years in Hollywood, when he was, was a, a a very committed liberal Democrat, you, you really have to look at his. At his father, uh, Jack Reagan, who was uh, a a really interesting uh, figure, Uh, this this was Irish Catholic, hard drinking Irish Catholic, more than likely an alcoholic, uh, who had a hard time feeding and housing his family because he just could not keep a job for very long. But the one job that he seemed to keep for the longest time, and that seemed to have, he was a shoe salesman, and it was not that was not something Reagan aspired to be, but during the Depression. Uh, his father did get a job in a New Deal agency in, in Dixon, Illinois, where, where, where Reagan spent the majority of his of his childhood, or at least the, the, the formative years of his childhood, the last years of you know, high school before he went off to college. And um, he was working for this New Deal agency, uh, helping people. And uh, and in Reagan's mind and Jack Reagan's mind and his son's mind, uh, he was working for for Franklin Roosevelt. He was working for the president. He was working in a New Deal agency and uh jack reagan worshiped fdr he was a he, he was a good new deal uh, liberal uh you know had a had a a social conscience um a strong um belief in the power of the federal government to make people's lives better and to help them when they were in need and reagan um you know reagan absorbed all of that he saw it happen he he um he admired reagan ronald reagan young ronald reagan admired fdr Listened like a lot of people did, like probably most people did in those days, to FDR's fireside fireside chats in the early and mid 30s in the depths of the of the depression. And what he heard was a was a president who was you know really skilled at communicating to people at at talking to them on their level. Uh, I, I went back and listened to a lot of those uh, those fireside chats too, and it's really remarkable uh, t- to listen to them because of the the way that that FDR did. Break down the issues in, in the way that the average person could understand them, and and you understand that that Reagan and the way that he talked about issues later in his career, even when he became a a conservative, uh, he really emulated FDR in a lot of ways. And and to the to the to his you know, to the to the end of his his life, Reagan, uh, while he no longer believed in FDR's politics, he he had an enormous amount of admiration for FDR's ability to communicate with the American people. So. All that's to say is that uh, Reagan grew up uh, worshipping FDR and believing deeply in the the, the, uh, the the policies of the Democratic Party, and it was mostly because of what I think he learned uh, from watching his his father's admiration for Reagan.
2: You, you describe him as being very engaged with public affairs, that he read newspapers, that he read magazines, that he, I, I especially like how, how uh, periodically in your book you would quote uh, actors and other people who knew him uh during these during his uh y- younger years as how he would just constantly bore them silly with all the statistics he memorized and all the information he knew he he, he seems to be you know very uh remarkably well engaged uh you know for a person of his generation and especially given that as he moved into hollywood
0: yeah that you know the what what i learned was that and I, you know I, I guess i vaguely knew this but you know, uh, acting is a is a is a pretty is a pretty boring business most of the time because you're between scenes and you know things are being set up, lighting's being uh, rearranged, the sets being changed, or you know some malfunction, and so the actors spend a lot of time on the set with nothing to do, and they're you know sometimes they're pretty bored. And uh, Reagan was never bored because he wasn't he was a voracious reader, and he wasn't reading you know he was you know Reagan read novels, he read he. He loved reading Westerns. But um, but Reagan was um, Reagan was a voracious reader of, of, pol- of books about politics, about public uh, public affairs, uh, either books or magazines, newspaper articles. Uh, he was he was uh, uh, he, he, he also had a uh, you know, he, as a, a lot of actors do, I suppose, he had a, a photographic memory. So a lot of what Reagan read, he, he retained and could. Could spout it off, and so as you mentioned, I I came across a lot of uh, a lot of anecdotes by actors and other people on the set who remembered Reagan in those years and who weren't really weren't weren't all that charmed by this um, by his fascination with by you know really by his obsession with politics because all he wanted to do you know when when the break happened when people were sitting around waiting for the lighting to be changed or whatever. You know they wanted they wanted to relax they didn't want to talk about politics and Reagan wanted to talk about politics he wanted to go on and on and on about politics in ways that that alienated a lot of people around him because he- just didn't apparently know when to shut up about it but it but what was interesting to me was that his interest in politics and his uh desire to read and imbibe deeply in in uh writing and and political history and, and books about economics and all this other stuff was political, uh, you know, just history in general, uh, showed itself very early in his, in his career. And, and you know, in, in his twenties, it wasn't that like a lot of these actors, uh, politics became something of an interest to them when they, maybe when they became rich or when something, you know, there was some decisive moment in their life when suddenly they realized that there were these issues they needed to care about. Reagan cared about this stuff from, uh, from the earliest days.
2: I thought it was especially interesting the contrast you set up between Reagan and his first wife, Jane Wyman. And and there I thought you really, you know, it, it, I thought it was especially interesting because she seemed to represent the, this other image of an actor that we have who's totally dedicated to the craft, who is uh, maybe it's a little premature to call her a method actress, but she's very committed to the craft of acting. And, and it, I was reading so I was trying to think, how did those two people ever get together? Because they, they seem so very different in terms of their whole approach to the profession and, and, and that and their and on one on the other level, their, their engagement to the wider world.
0: Yeah. Jane, Wy- Jane Wyman was really serious about her acting and she was she was, a, a, you know, one of the great one of the great uh, actors of her time and uh, you know, an Academy Award winning uh a- actress in, in ways that Reagan never was. Um uh and she did inhabit her characters to a degree that Reagan never did. Um and, um, and to the to the point that she you know, she brought that you know, Reagan would bring his politics home and want to talk about politics at the di- at the dinner table or the breakfast table, which really annoyed Jane uh annoyed Wyman. But on the other, on the flip side, as you mentioned, they were, you know, they, they really were were not a very good match in that sense because Wyman, instead of bringing politics home, would bring her 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 often bring her roles home. So she would she would stay in character uh, after the shooting had ended for the day because she was so committed to uh, the role. So you know, it's really no, it's really no surprise that the two of them didn't didn't last very long. And Reagan kind of got the. I think Reagan got a little bit of a bad rap because he get he kind of gotten most of the blame. Wyman sues him for divorce in the late 40s, and the 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 whole uh, divorce is sort of cast through her lens of her exasperation with Reagan's obsession with politics. And it was never uh, it, the portrayal of of her infidelity, and uh, or her alleged probable infidelity, and her um, and her and her equal obsession. With her career at the to the extent to with to the expense of at the expense of her family and and even her children was, was never really talked about as much as Reagan's uh, obsession with
2: politics. You discussed another aspect of of Reagan's acting that was relevant to your book, which was how y- you talk about how Wyman inhabited her roles, and Reagan never did. You, I, I particularly remember that uh, that uh, sentence you wrote about how how you know many actors just you know really get a kick out of playing the cat and how they enjoy playing a villain and that was not reagan and he has this uh the this this you know need for this self image and I, I was wondering how you see that as perhaps connecting to this eventual transition he makes into politics
0: yeah so you know reagan always plays a good guy the la- only the only bad guy he ever played in any of his movies was his last movie in in 19 it came out in 1965 but he played a bad guy and it was a terrible movie and he hated the movie, hated the role. Um, he really played himself. He played this, 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 this earnest, um, this, this earnest young man who, um, is always doing the right thing. Um, you know, n- never, never, never a rogue. Um, and, um, I, you know, I think that he wanted to play, uh, he, he, he wanted to play some roles that, 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 that uh, at some point, at least he wanted to play some roles that, that maybe uh, stretched him, but he couldn't get those roles because he was he was kind of typecast. Um, you know, I mean, i, I this may, maybe not answering your question entirely, but he was he gets a bad rap a little bit as being a terrible actor. And I went back and, and watched a lot of his movies and I'm not a, I'm not a movie critic. So, you know, take this with a grain of salt. I don't really know much about acting. But I didn't find him to be a terrible actor. I just find him to be a guy who was playing, pr- playing pretty well the same role over and over again. He was the same character in all these. He was Ronald Reagan. He was just playing himself, and he played Ronald Reagan pretty well. Um, maybe, maybe audiences and the in the movie studios got tired of that of that role that character. Although you know, my wife watches the the Hallmark Channel a lot, and those are the same the same care basic characters over <laughs> and over again, and people seem to like them. But, but. But for whatever reason, uh, Reagan's acting career just—you know—it never took off, and, and it may have something to do with the fact that he was playing the same person over and over again. But um, because he did play a wholesome character, and because he was so skilled at playing himself, and because his what he what he was playing was an earnest, honest, decent, honorable uh, fellow, uh, when when he did get into politics, he he it, it translated pretty well, and I think it 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 helped his. That helped his political career immensely.
2: It was it was interesting reading when you're talking about his uh, later career when we get to the late 40s and early 50s and how he cites his uh, he he he, he uh, blames the uh, association with labor activism uh, his uh, particularly his uh, uh, time as uh, a, a, a labor union leader. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk about that part of his uh, career and and the role that plays in that shift that uh, takes place in his politics it, it, was it the main role what, uh, what and and what other factors were also shaping his politics during that time
0: well i think it's no surprise you know so reagan becomes eventually gets involved in in the late 40s and becomes the president of the screen actors guild which is the labor union that that represents the afl uh, affiliated labor union that's representing the screen actors uh, to the union to the uh, uh, studios uh, and that that role as a as a as a union leader as a political as a Hollywood political leader in that sense was just tailor made for Reagan because he was really where he was most interested. Uh, he was he was he he had a lot of skills in that area that they really shown when he got into that and uh, playing when he when he got into uh, very being very active in the screen in SAG the Screen Actors uh, Guild and um, you know he blamed the the he, I, I think he always exaggerated a little bit the uh, the role that 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 activism uh, had on his uh, his acting career. He always claimed that because of his uh, activities with 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 the Screen Actors Guild that he couldn't get the roles that he wanted because he was always the guy fighting um, the uh, the studios, and that exaggerates the the hostility or the animosity between SAG and the studios. This was this was not. This was not like the electrical workers striking in 1946 against General Electric, very hostile uh, labor action, labor strike. This was this was a much more uh, sort of friendly labor union that that almost there were some strikes, but they were. But for the most part, this was not a really hostile uh, relationship What? What really hurt Reagan's career was not his his political act his growing political activism. What happened is what hurt Reagan's career was his was spending four years in the army uh, during the Second World War and coming back and and having a lot of other actors who had supplanted him who were much better than him and who were younger and and played roles that people were interested in. Hollywood had changed and he wasn't really able to get his acting career back after after 1945. Uh, and so I think he he goes in he he gets act he gets more active in the Screen Actors Guild not because not entirely because um, he's interested in politics but because he he needs something else to do with his with it with himself and this is this this sort of fulfills uh you know sort of fills a hole in his life and he ends up liking it a lot and he ends up being surprisingly maybe not surprisingly but he ends up being really good at it and this he he sort of finds. While he's still an actor, that politics is uh, is something that comes natural to him. He can give these speeches, he can talk about these 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 labor negotiations and these these quote quote unquote political issues related to the movie industry in a way that people understand. He's persuasive, and you know from his earliest days, I write about it in the book from his earliest days in 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 college and even before college, he loved uh, performing and not just. Performing in, in a in a way of you know, like acting a role, he lo- he loved giving speeches. He liked speaking to people, uh, whether it was as playing a role or whether when whether it was on radio as a radio announcer or whether it was um, uh, give, standing up and giving a, a formal speech. He really enjoyed that, and he and he was good at it. And so this this Screen Actors Guild activism uh, was just sort of tailor made for someone like him.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: what he's doing publicly, but you're also charting his political evolution and one of the things I, that you do earlier in the book we, and we didn't really touch upon this is the fact that he he's not the only actor who's interested in politics. You, you mentioned that there were others that, that that spoke with them people like say Robert Montgomery and how they would engage in politics and and, and you know people like Montgomery were you know tend to be more conservative than, than Reagan was. And it gets this very interesting discussion that I I, I I thought was especially fascinating, which is the depth of Reagan's you know earlier liberalism versus this growing engagement that he's having with conservative issues. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, delve into that and talk about how it fits into what's happening in politics in the in the mid to late nineteen forties.
0: Yeah, so uh, so there's 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 a there's a lot of different little strands in Reagan's life that are that are that are tugging him uh, toward political conservatism, none of which are strong enough to, to, to pull him over to the other side until uh, later in the fifties, but they're there. And I think they, they're worth talking about. I'm glad you brought them up. One is, is his brother, Neil his, his who he's very close to who comes out, who follows him out to Hollywood and gets a job as a public relations executive and is working kind of in the film industry and, and, and doing PR for for studios and, and actors and all that, his brother Neil is a very conservative. becomes a very conservative Republican, and and he and Neil have a have a lot of, or sort of you know, the the arguments that they would have often happened at these Hollywood parties and attracted a lot of attention. And uh, Reagan's got a lot, as you mentioned, a lot of Republican Hollywood friends who are talking to him, trying to pull him into their orbit, and he's having these these arguments with them, but. You, know, you can sort of see in some ways he's sort of listening he's hearing he's hearing them he's he's maintaining his, his friendships with him these aren't uh, political arguments like we see maybe t- in today's political environment that are destroying friendships these are more much more much more friendly kind of arguments where you can almost feel that maybe Reagan is being wooed a little bit maybe being gradually persuaded to see um, to see the other side um, and then you know, then after his marriage falls apart in the late forties, in the early fifties, uh he 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 meets you know his his the real love of his life, Nancy Davis. And um, you know, Nancy's a conservative Republican. Her father is a very conservative Republican, famous uh neurosurgeon, politically active neurosurgeon. And Nancy um is not so much um talking politics with him, but it 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 appears that Nancy uh, introduces him to uh, a different social uh, circle. And so suddenly Reagan, or maybe not suddenly, but gradually Reagan is, uh, the Reagans have a different kind of social circle than he had when he was with Wyman, who was who was a liberal Democrat herself, or when he was just around some, some of these liberal Hollywood types. Uh, Nancy is maybe cultivating a different kind of social circle for him that involves a lot of, uh, not only actors, but they're conservative actors like Jimmy Stewart and others but also a lot of conservative business executives in the Hollywood, Southern California um, region, and I think that that is that's pulling Reagan into the conservative orbit a little more, and maybe maybe sets him up really nicely for, um, you know, his final sort of push into conservatism that that happens in the later in
2: the 50s. So you, but what you're, so what you're describing at this point is a. Uh, this transition point where Reagan's at, which is he's uh, finishing up, he finished up his term as, as as the president of SAG. He uh, is, you know, he he's no longer getting those acting jobs that he wants. He still sees himself as an actor, though. And then this, and then he transitions to this position with General Electric. I was wondering if you could describe, you know, how he ends up working for General Electric. And what it is that he does with General Electric, and then finally, how does that affect his politics, and how does it, how does it, uh, it, it, you know, shift his his political direction?
0: Yeah. So in the um, in the uh, you know from 1952, 53, 54, Reagan's acting career is is really on the rocks. I mean, he's just not getting the movies. He's he's been cut loose by Warner Brothers. So he's no longer an employee on a getting a regular salary. He's a freelancer, and he's, he's just not you – know, he's making a few movies here and there, but none of them are successful. Um, he mainly lives in those years by the money he makes from appearances on television shows. Uh, and he gets – very briefly, he gets – he gets a television show in 1953 through early 1954, doing some interviews of, of, of other actors, uh, and he's terrible at the, he's terrible at this. And so it, it, that, that show doesn't last; it's not very successful. In desperation, his um, his agent gets him a job emceeing a, um, a comedy review show in in Las Vegas, where he's 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 paid about fifteen thousand dollars for two weeks' work, and he and it's a humiliating experience for him. Uh, it's, a, it's a big come down having to go to Vegas and and do this do this show, um, but he needs the money. He just really needs the money, and so finally, uh, he uh, he gets. Um, it, it it's not clear how many other actors were in the running to host this uh, this Sunday night dramatic thirty minute dramatic series that General Electric was sponsoring uh, on CBS, but Reagan. Uh, for however he gets it, he gets the job of of hosting the show. He introduces the, the show and, and and closes the show, and acts in a few and a, you know maybe a, a, a ten or so episodes every year. And um, and he's he's been, suddenly he's being paid pretty well for this. So it's a good it's a great job for him. This this show lasts eight years on. It's one of the top rated shows on television. He becomes a household name again. He's making a lot of money. But part of the, the other part of this job working for GE is that they want him to be a goodwill ambassador for the corporation. And that involves, uh, going around and visiting, um, all of the 135 or so, uh, general electric uh, manufacturing plants spread around the country. Most of them in small and medium sized cities in the, in the South and Midwest, upper Midwest, Northeast. And, uh, so he, he starts doing that and, um, as uh, in preparation for this work, um, you know, he's now going to be the goodwill ambassador. GE's he, he, part of his job is to interpret the company to to the employees to be able to converse about the company's uh, values, um, including its political views. Uh, and it's a very conservative company. Somebody described it at the time as being more conservative than the than the John Birch Society. It was a very conservative, sort of anti-union company that really was anti-union in a in a devious way, but they were. It was, very much about keeping the unions, uh, keeping the unions down, and 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 reducing the the likelihood there would be a strike. And so, uh, Reagan, the former labor leader, becomes the tool of the company, um, trying to keep keep its labor unions happy and 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 um, and and uh, content and not not strike. And so he starts going around the country, visiting these plants and visiting with the workers, walking the shop floors, walking the factory floors. And over, uh, it wasn't very long after he began doing this, that he would be in a, he would be in a town and they would ask him to speak to the local, you know, my, the first, the first speech was just a, a speech in Schenectady, New York. And I guess it was September, October of 1954, uh, when a, a speaker at a, at a, at a teacher's convention suddenly got sick and they needed someone the next day to speak. And, and Reagan gets volunteered to do this. And he goes with very little preparation and gives a a fairly impressive speech on education policy that makes some national news, in fact. And um, so in the beginning, Reagan starts speaking to civic clubs and other local organizations as sort of a sideline to these factory visits. At first, he talks about Hollywood a lot more than he talks about politics. But eventually, with the company's indulgence, he begins talking about politics. And um, the way I look at it is that— the the, the the politics of General Electric was beginning to influence him because he he wanted to be a good goodwill ambassador. He wanted to please the people who were paying him a lot of money. So it was, it was in his economic interest to start seeing the world through General Electric's eyes. Um, but I think there's also the, the the fact that he was also speaking to these small and medium sized these these civic clubs and other groups. Uh, in these small and medium-sized cities, uh, they were almost probably entirely made up of very politically conservative people, and uh, you know I think his natural inclination was to say things that were pleasing to them. And um, even Reagan admitted uh, once that 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 these audiences began to pull him more to the right. So this was a guy who, as in as late as 1952, was trying to persuade Dwight Eisenhower to run for president as a Democrat and within a couple of years he's going around the country giving you know giving um still a democrat he had, didn't switch parties till the early 60s but still but 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 giving very conservative politically conservative speeches uh his transformation from from democrat to conservative happened pretty pretty quickly and i think you can pretty much pinpoint it in beginning in in um in the fall of 1954 when he began working for GE
2: and this gets us to what I think is, in many ways, the most impressive part of your book. Because, as you describe this, while Reagan was a well-known actor, he had this TV show, and of course, he then goes on to become the uh, governor of the nation's largest state and the president of the United States. This is a period of his life that we don't have the details of his speeches. He, he didn't have a press corps traveling around to, to dictate it down. So, figuring out exactly what he was saying and 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 uh, and how uh, that those speeches changed over time. It requires a considerable amount of detective work. Well,
0: it did, and I didn't know what I, didn't know what I was going to do in the beginning because
2: I couldn't find
0: any uh, in the archives. I could find nothing that said, here's where Reagan went and when he went there. So I, I was really kind of feeling around in the dark. I was so desperate that I, I uh, started looking for news stories that were printed in local newspapers after Reagan died. Uh, hoping to find uh, some references to, you know, the day when Ronald Reagan came to town, maybe maybe to give me some insight into when Reagan was there and, and you know, find news stories about it. And I didn't find much from that because it, it involved a lot of calling up of um, reference librarians and county libraries asking them to to go dig this stuff out, and some did and some didn't. Uh, and then I stumbled across uh, the... Um, uh, the fact that all the, these all these genealogy websites have archived thousands of local newspapers around the country to help people figure out who their ancestors were and an added benefit of, of those is that you can you can you can you can search they're fully searchable and so i just started i subscribed to them all and started pl- and plugged in Ronald Reagan and just went through methodically uh, all these papers and 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 what i found was was a, was dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of stories about Reagan's um visits to these local little towns and and in most cases almost every in almost every case the, the whatever reporter was assigned to cover the uh, the story did not really write much of a analytic analytical piece about Reagan they were it, it was pretty much stenographic journalism which I'm very much against and we and here at LSU I teach in the, in the journalism school we teach our students not to do that but I was very grateful that these reporters <laughs> uh, took that approach because you know, it was a lot of just you know just long passages of you know, a lot of it was verbatim. And it was very helpful to me because Reagan just did not speak with, he did not speak from a text. So you go to his library in, um, in Simi Valley in California, and you're just not going to find a lot from that period because most of what Reagan said was the product of his photographic memory. And, um, the the note cards that he had. So he, you know, he had, if there was an anecdote or a story or a fact or figure that he wanted to talk about, it was, there was some shorthand on a note card that to him was the prompt for this maybe three minute story, but on the note card, it might be indecipherable what he, what it was. Uh, and, and he would mix and match these things around and he would, he would use them to change the speech. As he went around, and as he as he went around the country and perfect the speech. If a story didn't work, he'd throw it out and he would put another one in. And if this anecdote didn't didn't if this anecdote didn't seem to influence the audience, he he'd throw that out and find something else that worked. And so, um, it, it, it it there was just no way to tell what Reagan said it, it, over from 1954, 55, 56, 57, 58 through the early 60s, and look at the evolution of his political views and, and what he was saying to these audiences around the country. Uh, without finding these news stories. that it, it saved it saved the book for me because if it hadn't been for that, I, I don't know what else I would have really written about. There wouldn't have been much to write about because there just would have been no insight into what he was saying in those days.
2: It's also interesting how you describe the process of how he gives a speech. And that was something I I, I must confess I, I'd never really uh, seen before and I never really even thought about before. But you describe how he was very uh, cognizant of his eyes. I was especially struck by how you described how most politicians preferred a, a, a darkened room with uh, them at the center of the spotlight and Reagan preferred to see his audience so he could gauge their reaction and use that as you just described in terms of shaping his speeches.
0: Yeah. So when he's when he's – the way he knows that a joke didn't Go over too well, or that an anecdote didn't influence them, or the cl- or the closing of the speech didn't inspire them the way that he hoped was he could he could see it in their eyes because he was looking at them uh, in a in a room that was that it was fully lighted. Um, he also liked to be as close to the audience as possible. He didn't so if he could if he had anything to say about how the room was set up, he wanted to be able to um, be as close to the to the to the audience he was speaking to as possible. But because he wasn't reading from a text, he he was able to keep his eyes on the audience and look look into their eyes and and gauge in real time how they were responding uh, to what he was saying. And I think that gave him a a real advantage over the kind of speaker who is number one, just giving the same speech over and over again and maybe not really caring so much how the response is because these words have maybe been written by somebody else, and that person's not as invested in them as. As someone like Reagan, who wrote his own speeches, and they were the, these speeches were the product of his own research. Um, but you know, Reagan had a commitment to these speeches. He wanted the next one to be better than than the last one. He wanted to get it right, and uh, and he was giving a lot of these speeches around the country. And so you just see this gradual perfection of the speech because of because of the way Reagan was giving it, um, because Reagan's ability to. Uh, Closely observe his audience. Um, uh, I think made all the made, really made all the difference in the world to um, g- you know, getting into the point to 19 October of 1964 when he gives this speech. That to the untrained eye, to the to the uninitiated, to the person who wasn't aware what he was doing all these years, looked like, oh my God, where did this guy come from? This perfect speech, but it was not a perfect speech when he started giving it. It was in the, this constant state of being perfected over
2: almost 10 years. So how does he go from being a GE spokesperson to being a uh, campaigner uh, f- and, and, and a, and a uh, speaker on behalf of the Barry Goldwater campaign in 1964? Was it a, a was it a, a, a straightforward conjunction or were there some bumps along the road?
0: Well, so, you know, Reagan had a history of campaigning for candidates, you know, back to um, to he campaigned actively for Harry Truman in 19. 19- 48, he was the MC of a big rally in, in Los Angeles for Truman. He made a national radio address for Hubert Humphrey in 1958 when he was running for, for Senate in Minnesota. He campaigned for Helen Gahagan Douglas against uh, Richard Nixon in 1950 when he ran for the Senate and won the Senate seat in California, um, campaigned for Dwight Eisenhower in 1952, campaigned uh, for... Uh, Richard Nixon in 1960, and then very active in Nixon's uh, uh, gubernatorial campaign in 1962, did made dozens and dozens of, ex- of appearances around the around the state on behalf of uh, of Nixon. So by the time the, by the time uh, the Goldwater campaign comes around in 1964, this is not this is not something that is uh, alien to Reagan going around giving campaign speeches for for uh, candidates. Uh, he'd been doing that for a while, as I as I as I indicate, and so. Um, but what was different here, I think, was that this is the first time Reagan is really campaigning for someone that he knows, not just as someone I like and support, who I believe what they're saying. But this was Goldwater was a personal friend. Uh, he had gotten to know Goldwater uh, in the 50s because Goldwater uh, lived in the same neighborhood in Phoenix as uh, as Nancy Reagan's parents, who had re- moved from Chicago, retired in Phoenix or sort re- of semi retired in Phoenix or at least. He was working out of out of the Phoenix area then, and Reagan becomes acquainted with Goldwater personally and admires his politics as well. But when um, the uh, uh, you know Reagan is uh, you know and when 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 Goldwater is not sure whether he really wants to run for president um, in 1963, Reagan is 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 dropping his name into speeches and urging people to you know to encourage Goldwater to run. Uh, in many ways, Reagan. Even throughout the camp, the '64 campaign in the heat of the campaign, Reagan seems more enthusiastic about Goldwater than Goldwater is. Uh, <laughs> he was a real, true believer in in his friend Barry Goldwater and enlisted completely uh, in that race. Um, he goes to the convention as an alternate delegate, um, and uh, after the convention uh, is over and Goldwater's the nominee, he makes a bid to be the California state chair of the campaign and ends up having to share those duties with a, with a local politician who was pretty active in the Republican party, but Reagan becomes really the, the, um, the chief spokesperson for the party and the guy who's goes out and, and makes dozens and dozens of speeches all around California on behalf of, of, uh, of Goldwater and is, um, you know, it was really the face of that, of that uh, other than Goldwater was the face of the Goldwater campaign in California in
2: 1964. And, and that gets us to where, uh, you have this point at which he's asked to give this televised speech on behalf of Goldwater that is seen nationwide and is really seen as the uh, you know, the start of his national political career. I was wondering if you could explain, you know, uh, we've already talked to you about, about how this uh, the speech had many antecedents. You know, so how does he give it and, and and if you could summarize it first, what was he what was he saying in this speech?
0: Well, if I if I can if I can give you just a little bit of the run up to it, that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Reagan Reagan is one of these speeches that Reagan gives on behalf of Goldwater is to a, a, a dinner in, in Los Angeles in September of 1964. And it's it it's kind of interesting to me that every time anybody hears this Reagan give the speech for the first time, they just react uh, with this um, euphoria, like my God, we've never heard these issues talk like that. We've never heard anybody talk like this. You know, Reagan's been given the speech forever. But for some reason, it just it blows people away every time they hear it for the first time. And so Reagan um, gives the speech and some California business executives who are very active in fundraising in the, in, in, in the Republican Party in California decide that they want to raise the money to air this speech nationally on behalf of Reagan. So they, they create a separate Goldwater TV committee uh, uh, that that is, that is sort of running Affiliated with, but separate from the, the the Goldwater campaign and the the Republican National Committee, and by television time to put the speech on on um, uh, put the speech on television on uh, on, a, on you know in prime time a, a week before the uh, before the uh, election, and uh, Reagan goes in, into a studio and he gives this he gives the speech in front of a studio audience sort of it's they like, sort of create it to look like a rally. And the speech is the, is the same is really the same speech as Reagan has been giving all these years, which is um, a warning about the dangers of communism and how communism you know Reagan always kind of conflates communism and socialism, but the 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 threat that, that communism poses to the future of the United States and to the world, um, particularly the threat of soviet Soviet communism. Um, and then the rest of the speech is uh, – uh, 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 until he gets to really talking specifically about Goldwater, the rest of the speech is uh, these th- these anecdotes and stories about, about the uh, metastasizing growth of big government and what it means to our individual liberties. Uh, these uh, reckless, hapless, foolish, uh, dishonest uh, government bureaucrats who are wasting your money who are – uh, you know, squandering your hard earned tax dollars and and how it's not only depriving you of your resources, but it's depriving you of your of your freedom. And so the, the theme of this really, the, 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 if there's one common thread to the speech, it's really freedom and how the communists are trying to take it from you on one hand. And our leaders are doing really nothing to stop the communists. In fact, they're encouraging them. Uh, and on the other hand, your own government is trying to take your freedoms away, and um, they're on 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 every, on, on every front. Uh, your freedoms are being attacked, and there's one man who uh, who has been standing um, uh, in, in the breach to try to stop this from happening. The most effective d- defender of freedom we have in the country today, and that's Barry Goldwater. And he he finishes up the speech with this. Very emotional, uh, these these stories about Goldwater and his humanity. He's defending Goldwater uh, because Goldwater is has been pretty bellicose in it's in his discussion of nuclear nuclear bombs and um, made some very reckless remarks that, that make it look like Goldwater wants to start a nuclear war. So Reagan is defending him and humanizing him in ways that Goldwater never was able to really uh, do for himself. And he finishes up with this really passionate, inspirational uh, flourish about about the importance of freedom, quoting Lincoln and quoting Franklin Roosevelt, saying we have a rendezvous with destiny. And it's it's inspiring. And, you know, anybody who had seen a Reagan speech in a, at a in a Kiwanis Club or a or a United Way um, over the years would have recognized and heard a lot of these lines. But for most of the people who were watching it on national television that night, it was brand new, just like it was to the audience at in Los Angeles a few months earlier who were just blown away and people were people who saw it were really blown away and uh, were were um were kind of confused in a way because they had always known Ronald Reagan as a as a, a vuncular guy on television introducing General Electric Theater and they remembered some of his movies from the late thirties, early forties, but they had no idea that he could he could speak about politics with such passion and eloquence.
2: So does in the end this speech end up uh you know, being the springboard into his career, into his political career, or is it, or is it a bit more than that?
0: It's a bit more than that, but, um, but I think, but I think it's a lot of it. Um, he, uh, so the California Republican Party is kind of decimated. I mean, Nixon, you know, uh, uh, lost pretty badly against Pat Brown in 1962, and the party is is kind of, you know, uh, Johnson uh, carries California in a landslide, you know, Reagan's efforts for Goldwater didn't do, didn't really help much in California. And the party's feeling, you know, really desperate trying to figure out how do we, you know, how do we get back on our feet here? And they didn't really have any, they didn't really have much to to look at. There were a few, there was a, you know, a uh, Republican mayor of, of, uh, of, uh, of, um, of San Francisco, was wanting to run for governor. And the, the one bright spot is that one of Reagan's former co-stars, George Murphy, an actor, song and dance man, gets elected to the U.S. Senate from California in 1964. And so there's a bright spot there. Uh, but beyond that, on in, in statewide politics, there wasn't much to be um, optimistic about, except here's this guy, Ronald Reagan, who has just given this amazing speech that electrified uh, a significant part of the nation, at least the conservative part of the nation, who a lot of conservatives around the country, when they heard Reagan speak on behalf of Goldwater, thought that he made a much more effective uh, argument for conservatism than the Goldwater ever did. And, and Goldwater had been had been seen as the most effective spokesperson for conservatism to that point. And then suddenly here comes Reagan, uh, I guess, in a way you could say showing showing people how it's really done. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, maybe a kinder, gentler face to it, a more avuncular face. I mean, Goldwater you know, what, what people saw in Goldwater was, I, I, I sort of compare it to maybe listening to a Bernie Sanders speech, uh, today, you know, it's, 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 um, you know, it's pure, unadulterated socialism, uh, in a, in a way maybe that, that Ray, that Goldwater was getting pure, unadulterated conservatism. I mean it's just, you know, it's, it's straight, it's, it's maybe it's hard, it's, it's good medicine, but it's, it feels, it, it kind of hurts going down. Reagan made it go down smoothly. You know, he he sugarcoated a lot of it. He he smiled. He told jokes. He he made you like it, and it just I think California conservatives, uh, conservative leaders especially, saw that this is a guy who could who could who could do this thing. So um, Reagan immediately begins. Uh, you know, he 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 pretends that he's not interested, but obviously he is, and. He begins um, a listening tour around California, which is just really it truly is testing the waters just to see if if he gets if he's going to get the reaction that he wants when it's when when he for the first time is is suggesting himself maybe for governor. And he he gets what he he gets what he's looking for, which is a lot of enthusiasm for his candidacy.
2: Well, we've taken a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? I have been working on a book on the side uh,
0: forever and I'm still going to continue working on it. Uh, I'm fascinated by um wartime propaganda and particularly in the uh First World War. So I'm working on a book on British and German propaganda in the United States during the First World War and how uh the British and the Germans were fighting over American public opinion during that time. Um uh, I've uh I've done all the British uh, archival research, and my my next um, my next challenge is to figure out how to how to do archival research in Berlin when I don't speak a, a word of German. <laughs> well, <laughs> it may I wish, take a few more years.
2: I, I wish you the best of luck with that, and I hope that when you do complete the book, we can have you back on the New Books Network.
0: That would be be my honor. I would love that. Thank you for such a for such a wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it, Mark.
2: Well, thank you very much, Robert. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks.